This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity, and happy Mother's Day. Uh, as I was thinking about Mother's Day, it got me thinking about uh, parenting and how hard it is to parent kids who have to wait. I recently had this happen. Uh, I, our, our marbete expired. Our marbete is like kind of our, our, our license and tags here in Puerto Rico, if you don't know. Um, it expired, uh, but I was made aware of this on my wife's car uh, the day that it expired. And then we had to wait the weekend uh, before I could renew it. And so uh, on Monday, uh, two weeks ago, I decided, you know what, I'm going to fix this marbete problem uh, and I'm going to take Joaquin early to school. So we left like an hour and a half early to arrive like 15 minutes before the inspection site opens. Uh, and when we got there, we were the 10th in line. Now, Joaquin, if you don't know my son, he's four years old. Uh, Four-year-olds aren't known for their patience. Um, they're also very still though aware of their surroundings. And so, you know, even on the drive, he's going... Dad, this isn't the way to my school. We arrive. Dad, this isn't my school. Dad, why are we waiting in this line? Dad, can we do this another day? Can we come back later? Dad, why is this taking so long? Dad, I'm hot. Dad, I'm thirsty. Now, as a father, I'm like slowly coming unhinged, you know, because I'm also not very patient. And yet he's just back there, strapped in the back of our hatchback, wondering why he's not at school. He knows what the regular is supposed to be, and he doesn't understand why plans are going this way this day. And I think God knew what he was doing when he described himself as our father. Because I think often we feel like we're kind of strapped in the back of his hatchback, not sure where we're going. And we're like, uh, this, this wasn't the plan. <laughs> I think this was, this, I had something different in mind. It was supposed to look different. It was supposed to feel different. I'm kind of uncomfortable I don't like where you have me. Now, of course, God is not subject to governmental emissions checks, uh, but as his children, I think we still find it difficult to trust him, to trust him when the path doesn't seem to be right, when we feel uncomfortable, when we're not arriving at the destination as quickly or even in the direction that we thought we would. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, then you know our sermon series is on the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet, and it's full of, uh, frankly, very strange prophecies. And we've already looked at some, and we're about to see a lot more. Um, if you were to read through the book of Zechariah, I'm sure you'd probably close it and go, that was weird. <laughs> what we're trying to do is understand that Zechariah was uh, preaching to a people who were in exile. And let me remind you what exile means. It means that their enemies won. They were defeated. They'd been carried away from their homeland. The temple and their walls of their city were torn down brick by brick. They lived, as, they lived as an oppressed people in a foreign land. But this wasn't the end of the story for exile, because a new power would rise. This would be the Syrian Empire, and it'd be a, a little bit more friendly to the Jewish people, and would allow the Jews to return to their homeland and even give them some resources to start rebuilding their capital city and their temple. But it wasn't going that well. They were kind of tormented by local warlords. Um, they couldn't really defend themselves because they didn't have a wall or an army. People were kind of coming back in stages, so they didn't have a large people group arriving all at once. You can almost imagine all of Israel going, God, what are you doing? Why are we here? I'm uncomfortable. 
It feels like we're losing. We're getting beat up again and again. It feels like we're making no progress. And when we take you know, one step forward, it's two steps back. This isn't what you promised. What we're going to see today through the prophet Zechariah is God as the good father teaching us what his plan is all about. And we're going to see that in order to trust him, we need to do three things. We need to listen to his words. We need to focus on what is most important, and we need to persevere in holiness. These are going to be our three points today. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And just as a small note in advance, I practiced reading this a number of times, and I kept stumbling again and again in like a few different places. So just bear with me as I try to get through this. For some reason, the word order is a little tricky. Zechariah 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and you shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice." And shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So if Joaquin was tired of being in the backseat of the car and eager to get to school, what the Jews were tired of in Zechariah's day was not having a king. You see, their last official king had been tortured by the Babylonians And then they were in exile for 70 years. And during the 70 years, the line of kings was broken. Nobody held the office, and uh, and people were spread out and dispersed, and nobody was was quite sure whose title it should be. Now, what we find is that very early on as they returned to the land, they did pick up the threads of who the line was supposed to be. And, And the man who was supposed to be king, his name was Zerubbabel, which is a pretty sweet name. I don't know if like, you've just reflected on that for a moment. You know, we've got Zechariah, uh, my namesake, uh, but also Zerubbabel, which is much cooler. Um, Joshua is also going to be kind of mentioned, uh, in, in the, it has been mentioned already and will be mentioned uh, in, in Zechariah some more. So Zerubbabel was supposed to be this king. You can read about Zerubbabel's story in the Old Testament books, Ezra and Nehemiah, and you'll get to see a little bit more of what he does there. And in many ways, he did a lot of kingly things, but he was never the king. He helped uh, build and lay the foundations of the walls uh, and even kind of set the boundaries for where the temple would be. Uh, He helped defend God's people as they returned into this 
into into Jerusalem. But at best, he was considered a governor under the authority of Persian rule. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. God said that David's throne would have no end. Imagine receiving that promise from God. David's throne will have no end. He'll reign forever. And then imagine going into exile. Then imagine coming back from exile and going, why isn't there a king on the throne yet? God, you promised. Why wasn't there a king on the throne? Well, what happened was there was no kings who actually listened to God's word. There was no kings who actually listened to God's word. Now, to be sure, there were good kings and there were bad kings, but do you know what differentiated good kings and bad kings? Because it wasn't their perfection. David is described as a good king, but if you know anything about the life of David, he murdered and adultered. It's not good. What was the difference between good kings and bad kings is that good kings could listen to the word of God when it was declared to them. So if you remember the story of David, when the prophet Nathan came and declared God's word to him and said, you are the man, David fell on his face in repentance. The bad kings before the word of God could care less about God's word. God's desire for you first and foremost for your life, no matter in what situation you're in, is that you can always hear the word of the Lord. Now listen, this, fa- this passage is full of uh, a pretty weird prophetic language, and I'm going to be honest with you, uh, there's a lot of various interpretations on what it could mean. But even Zechariah himself didn't understand what it meant, and so it's recorded for us in here. He had to ask, what does this mean? And when the angel tells him in verse 6, his response is this, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. The most important thing about this vision is that the word of the Lord was coming to the the supposed king of God's people. So I just want to pause here. Notice that Zechariah was receiving words that were meant for Zerubbabel. Zechariah was receiving the word of the Lord, and it was meant for the king of God's people. But Zerubbabel was not the actual king of God's people. Zerubbabel is going to be a stand-in. He's going to be an image, a picture of who the true king should be, because Zerubbabel wasn't really the king. Zerubbabel was being attacked by surrounding warlords. But even if you were Zerubbabel, you're in Zechariah's day, you're hearing this this, uh, prophecy come forth. You're hearing that um, Zerubbabel is supposed to come forth in the power of God's Holy Spirit and conquer. But if you were to look around with your eyeballs, what you would see is Zerubbabel getting stomped by his enemies. He's not winning. Remember how I said it's not going well. What Zerubbabel needed was power and might. But when the word of the Lord came, it said, look in verse 6, not by might, not by power, while I relieve you from these surrounding warlords, but by my spirit. Now, I'm sure that to Zerubbabel, these didn't sound like the words of a loving father. People were dying. And God says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. What do God's words tend to sound like to you? When you hear the words of a heavenly father, are you more likely to hear the tone of your earthly father? Are you more likely to hear the tone of the evil one speaking to you? Are you actually listening to the words of God? 
Because what God is saying to Zerubbabel, despite what he might be hearing in this, when he says, I, what I really want is might and power. I don't want your spirit. What he needs to hear is God saying, I'm giving you my very self. Depend on me. I am the God who speaks. I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. I spoke everything that is into an existence. And you, you are the apple of my eye. I know we have this phrase uh, in English, but this was actually used uh, in Zechariah chapter 2 if you were with us. God described his people as the apple of his eye. Is Zerubbabel listening to the words of God? I haven't abandoned you. I love you. God isn't saying that he will provide you with mountains of power and might to face whatever you're facing in your life. God isn't promising that the situation that you are in will suddenly end. God isn't saying that you're going to get closer to your own goals. You might even get further away. But what God is always saying when he says he's giving you his spirit is he is saying, I love you. I love you. Sometimes these words, I love you, uh, can feel a little bit manipulative to us because I don't remember exactly what I said to Joaquin in the car that day, but it wouldn't surprise me if I said something like this. Joaquin, I love you, but your complaining is out of control, man. A lot of times it can feel like there's an I love you, but with God, but there are no buts with God. God loves the prodigal son. He loves the cynical son who stayed. He loves his people who betrayed him. He loves those who spit on his face. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is God's word to you. Can you hear it? Now, this leads us to our second point, because if our first job is to listen to the words of God to us, then we also need to focus on what is important. This passage is about temple reconstruction, and indeed, most of the book of Zechariah kind of focuses on the temple being reconstructed because it had been destroyed when the Babylonians came. They took it apart brick by brick. And temple reconstruction was a very big deal. And so when ancient cultures got the chance to rebuild a temple after it was destroyed, do you know what they would do? They would do tons of sacrifices. They would do parades and fasting and mourning and then also celebration after it was completed. Worshippers, in some sense, knew that atonement was needed. They needed to be made right with the God that they had offended, because here was the idea. It wasn't that their God had been de defeated by a superior God. It's that their God had abandoned them because they hadn't been faithful enough. And you know what the story of Israel kind of was? God had vacated his presence from the temple because his people had not been faithful, and the temple had been destroyed. The temple of Israel had been abandoned by God in his wrath. And here's how uh, one commentator uh, talked about this temple reconstruction. He said, No ancient ruler would proceed with reconstruction of a destroyed temple without divine approval. And this was especially important when a temple had been abandoned and destroyed due to a deity's wrath. They needed divine approval to begin reconstruction to go about it of their own will, to say, you know what, God, uh, you brought us back from exile, and now we know that we're in the right. I'm going to start rebuilding this temple, would have been arrogant. They're waiting to hear God's word. They needed atonement. They needed to be made right with God, and atonement required big events, big displays of sorrow and repentance, big days of celebration, big sacrifices, and we have plenty of historical examples of these. Uh, in the time of Zechariah, we can look back at inscriptions on walls and read about how they dedicated these temples. 
big days. But what does God's word to Zerubbabel say that this day will look like? Well, look at verse 7. Zerubbabel will come. The king will come, and he will remove mountains. And he will come with a top stone, which can also be translated cornerstone. And he will either lay the foundation, but he will also complete the construction of the temple where God will again dwell with his people. His people, verse 10, will rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of the king. If you don't know what a plumb line is, you know, it's like those lines that we stretch out to make sure that a wall is straight. Or vertically, we hang a weight on it so that we know that it's straight up and down. It's kind of a plumb line. They will rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of the king, setting the boundaries for where the temple is supposed to be. These seem like big events, but it wasn't actually going to happen on a big day. Look at verse 10. This is a little bit difficult to translate, but the idea is this. Even the one who despised the day of small things will rejoice because on that day of seemingly small things, Zerubbabel will come with a plumb line in his hands. It's not going to happen in a big day. It's not going to happen with might and power. It's going to happen by God's Spirit on a seemingly small day. There's a story of Jesus in John 2, and it goes like this. Jesus entered the temple during Passover. Passover was an important holiday, but uh, just like Passover today, uh, was relatively insignificant in the sense of it happens every year, normal occurrence. And on this normal day, Jesus came into the temple and he cleansed it of the money changers and the sheep and oxen that were in the court of Gentiles so that people couldn't worship. And I just want to read for you what happens next. This is John 2, 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus was the real Zerubbabel, the real king. He was the king who on a seemingly ordinary Passover weekend would be asked to show a sign that he really was who he said he was. He was the king who on a different Passover day a couple years later would sacrifice his body, the true temple on Golgotha, and finally rebuild this true temple where God would dwell with his people. Everything that is spoken of in this passage is accomplished by Jesus on that day. And in the grand scheme of history, it all seems like it happened on a small, regularly insignificant Passover day. Romans crucified people all the time. Jesus was not the only person crucified. Now, to be, you know, to be true, uh, it was a very serious capital punishment. It was very painful, and yet they did it a lot. We have tons of records. On this Passover day, real atonement of God's people would take place. On this day, a real temple would be rebuilt where God's people could actually meet with God face to face. And on the seeming insignificant day 2,000 years ago, the true Zerubbabel came with a plumb line. And on that seemingly insignificant day, we were supposed to know that God came to dwell with us again. If we're supposed to listen to God's word, we need to focus on what's really important about God's word. 
in all of Scripture. It doesn't tell us everything that we would ever want to know about anything. That's not what Scripture does. But what Scripture does tell us about is about the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It says that is the most important thing. So that all the threads of the Old Testament and all the stories of the New Testament run through the atonement that Jesus purchased on that seemingly insignificant day. And the entire story of Scripture is saying that if you focus on this in your life, no matter what you were experiencing, it will put everything else in perspective. It seems small, but it's revolutionary. See, one commentator had this uh, to say about Zechariah's prophecy about this day, this seemingly insignificant day. He said, it would seem insignificant, but such a day would signal a shift from curse to blessing and even set in motion cosmic shifts that would overturn empires. For Zechariah's audience, that probably just meant the Persians. That's probably what they were thinking of. When Jesus came, you know what his disciples were thinking of? The Romans. But as we look back in history, we see that Jesus came to not only topple our earthly adversaries, but the greatest adversary that we ever had, death itself. I don't know what you're facing at this moment. I'm not sure which hatchback you're strapped into the back of screaming at God, wondering when it's going to be over, why you're not going the right way, or why you're not moving at all, wondering if he even loves you at all. But what I do know is this. You need to listen to God's words of love, and you need to focus on what's most important. Whatever else you receive in this lifetime, nothing of it is as valuable as what you already have in Christ Jesus. And focusing on this allows you to weather whatever storm. It allows you to put everything else in perspective. It allows you to breathe and see God's love for you no matter the circumstances, even in the midst of discomfort and pain and suffering, because focusing on Jesus' atonement of you is really that important. It shows just how far God was willing to go for you. Your present circumstances won't stop him. They're not insurmountable. He went to death and back for you. Now this brings us to our last point, because if all this is true and we already have Jesus, what are we supposed to do now? Are we all supposed to quit our jobs and become pastors and missionaries? Are we supposed to sell our things and follow him? And it's possible he's calling you to do something like that. But I think when we think in those terms, we're actually trying to work by our own power and might and less by his spirit. I don't know if you guys remember, but last week at the end of chapter 3, it says that everyone will invite his neighbor under his fig tree. This is in Zechariah, chapter 3 of Zechariah. Everyone will invite his neighbor under his fig tree. And what it is saying is that everyone whose iniquities are washed away and who have been atoned for will invite others into the safety and security of relationship with God in whatever they do or whatever circumstances they're given in their life. Now, at the most simple, this means evangelizing. Right? Telling others about how you find God's will for your life by listening to his words and focusing on the atonement. But on another level, it means living a life of one who has been redeemed. Being set free from the chains of sin and living your life before the eyes of God. This is hinted at the end of our passage in verses 10 through 14. Zechariah describes these bowls that are on this lampstand as the eyes of God roaming throughout the earth. And if you've never thought about uh, maybe our catechism question, you can go back and think about that, but no one can stand before the eyes of God on their own merit. All of them must be anointed from, the, from outside of themselves. 
Now, we're going to talk about these anointed ones at the end of our Zechariah passage in a second. But I'm just going to say that the only way that you can stand before the eyes of God himself is if you've been anointed, if you've cast your faith upon the atonement of Jesus Christ himself. And if you have truly done that, you now live a holy life before the eyes of God himself, no matter where you are placed, a life that is marked by renouncing sin and living under righteousness, a life that is anointed by his Holy Spirit. Now you might say, but pastor, I fail. I don't live a holy life. It was never really about your perfection in the first place. Like the good kings of the past, you're supposed to repent and return again to the thing you were always supposed to focus on. Jesus purchased your atonement. It was never about your obedience. You continue to persevere in holiness because you've been anointed, not with worldly might, not with worldly power, but by God's Holy Spirit to announce His kingdom in every single thing that you do. Whether it's parenting your kids, or driving your car, or sweeping the floor, or doing your job. Do you know what the Bible says that this will look like? This kind of anointing with the Holy Spirit? It says it'll look like this, kind words that turn away wrath, peacemaking, forgiveness, humility, honesty, faithfulness, self-control, generosity, executing justice, advocating for the oppressed, putting the last first, long-suffering, these seem like small, relatively insignificant things in the grand scheme of the world. And so our question might be, does this actually accomplish anything? Not by worldly power or worldly might, but by His Spirit. What does it accomplish? After all, don't nice guys finish last? These don't feel like big things. They feel like small things. But these small things are signs that God has come into your life. They're signs that you've been anointed by the oil that feeds the lamp of God's eyes. And so you can stand before the eyes of God as a child of God. Of course, the small things are often the most difficult. I don't know if you've read through that list and you've like, I do all of those perfectly. Um, I hope not. I think most of us read through that list and realize we've got a long way to go. They're the most difficult. They often require us to die to our old patterns and ways of living. They cause us to be vulnerable to be taken advantage of by others. But these seemingly small acts of the Spirit truly, by the Spirit's power, empower kingdom building. You want to know how to build the kingdom of God, you have to be reliant upon the Spirit of God. You can't be reliant upon your own power and wisdom. You don't have what it takes. If you don't know me very well, um, I love the Lord of the Rings, the books and the movies. But I'm going to read for you here a quote from the books, but don't worry, I'm not going to nerd out too much, okay? This comes from a, a character named Elrond. He's kind of this wise guy. They're about to bark on this um, crazy quest uh, that's probably going to take most of their lives, and they know this. So it says, at least for a while, says Elrond, this road must be trod, but it will be very hard, and neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. Yet such is often the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. If your small hands 
by God's Holy Spirit could be faithful in just these small little things, the wheels of the world would move before the eyes of God. And although this passage is talking about God's will and God's plan for Israel, God's will and plan for Israel involved the coming of a king who would give his people everything that they needed to do that which God had called them to do. And when this King Jesus came, he gave us everything that we needed to do that which God has called us to do. Maybe just like how I'm training my son to be patient in things that he doesn't quite understand in the back of the car, so God is also forming us into the image of his son Jesus so that we might be anointed by his spirit and might have the kind of impact in the world that he did. And think about how Jesus operated in this world. Was it with a lot of might or power or an utmost dependence upon the Spirit of God? Now, I mentioned I talk about the two anointed olive branches. If you were to look at who the two anointed people are in Zechariah thus far in chapters 3 and chapter 4, you would get these names Joshua and Zerubbabel. We talked about Zerubbabel. He was supposed to be the picture of the king. Uh, we talked a little bit about Joshua last time. He was the picture of a priest. These were symbols of kind of offices that Israel was waiting to see fulfilled, right? They knew that God had made promises to them in the office of prophet, priest, and king. Zechariah right now is talking about priest and king specifically. And what we see in this imagery of this priest, Joshua, and um, king, Zerubbabel, becoming the olive branches that feed the very eyes of God. Most commentators agree that what is happening is that Zechariah is seeing a vision of God combining these offices into one. So that they shouldn't be looking for Joshua and Zerubbabel in two distinct people, but Joshua and Zerubbabel in one person. One person that would offer sacrifices of atonement. One person who would rule and defend us and conquer all of our enemies. One person who would be the Messiah. And what Zechariah was giving his people a glimpse of so many thousands of years ago is what we see much clearer. That this Messiah came, offices combined, atonement made, enemies conquered, and he defends us to this day. It's weird to stick with the hatchback imagery, but again, if we're strapped into the back of the hatchback and we're wondering where God is taking us, Everything in history, God is bringing to culmination in Christ Jesus himself. Scripture says no less than this. And it's saying it even here in Zechariah, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, that he is the beginning and the end, that everything finds its home in him, and we do not move or live or breathe or have our being except in him. God's plan for this entire world and whatever you're facing is to bring it all into redemption through Christ Jesus himself. No matter what uncertainty you have in your life, because of Jesus Christ, you can always hear God's words of love for you. You can open up his word and through the blood of Jesus Christ see that these words are to you. I love you. Because of Jesus Christ, you know that the atoning sacrifice is done and that you really are at peace with God. And before the eyes of God, you can stand as his child, dearly beloved and not cast out, no questions left. 
Because of Jesus Christ, you know that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who enables you to do these small acts of faithfulness, these small transitions of our character so that we might embody uh, and live like Jesus in our own lives, so that we might build his kingdom here. And that's how he taught us to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's plan for the whole world is for you to know his love for you in Christ Jesus. And this was as true for you as it was in the people in Zechariah's day. And just like the people in Zechariah's day, the only way that you can hear God's word, that you can focus on the atonement, and you can persevere in holiness, is if you make Jesus Christ King of kings and Lord of lords in your life, because that is who he is. If you will bow the knee to this king, you will hear the words, I love you, written on every page of Scripture. You will see Jesus' victorious atonement even in the darkest areas of your life. And you will persevere in holiness unto the end. We now have the opportunity to come to this table. And you know, uh, at this table, what we celebrate, what we remember is the most important thing. Broken body and shed blood. We come here every week as God's covenant people to proclaim to ourselves again and again and again that this is the most important thing. And I'm not talking about this table per se, but what it signifies. That Christ's sacrifice for us is the most important thing. And that we need to be reminded about it again and again and again And we don't need to just hear it on our ears. We need to taste it upon our lips. We need to know God's love for us. And he gave it to us in many numerous and profound ways. The night that Jesus was betrayed, when his disciples rejected him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. He turned and he gave it to his disciples as I ministering his name. Now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. If you're a Christian and you've been united to Jesus' body and blood and baptism, then this table is for you. And if not, if you've not been united to his body and blood and baptism, we'd ask you to refrain from participating in this table. Uh, not because uh, we don't want you here or we don't think you're worthy, uh, but because the king himself gave us a warning. And it's actually a warning uh, for non-believers as well as believers. It comes from 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read it for us. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's a serious thing. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This is the warning from our Lord, and it's a solemn thing to partake of the body and the blood of the Lord, uh, to declare with outward action something that might not not be an inward reality. And so if you're not going to partake, we don't want you to leave. There's some prayers in your bulletin. Please make use of those. If you've got questions about any of this, uh, come talk to me uh, or Kyle or any of our staff after. We'd love to answer questions you've got about that. Um, In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle. There's a serving station over here that also has a gluten-free option. So if you require gluten-free, you're going to want to head that way. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. 
Lord Jesus, our heavenly prophet, priest, and king, you have redeemed us. We ask, Lord, that in this meal we may see how valuable you are. And we ask, Lord, that our lives would be oriented towards your redemption. Holy Spirit, we ask that these common elements would be transformed to their spiritual purpose to nourish and preserve us unto holiness. And Heavenly Father, as we taste this blessing upon our lips, may we learn to hear your words towards us anew, words that declare that you love us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.